Welcome. Thank you for coming back. Uh, week one, mere Christianity. We said, Lewis writes, the Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and then given us a fresh start. A little different take comes from a book he wrote called God, God in the Dock, and he, he, he asked this, what are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. I'm going to repeat that. Because in the 21st century, we need to hear this as Christians. What are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. For Lewis, Christianity is exclusivity. It is not all gods or all paths lead to heaven. Not for Lewis. Then we remember the words of King Tyrion in the last battle. I am between the paws of the true Aslan. Then we remember the following, it's the second week from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lucy asked about Aslan, and she says, then he isn't safe. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Then last week from the great divorce, the speaker, the narrator, the teacher, George MacDonald, says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, to those who knock, is opened. Lewis says we, all of us, have to make a choice. You cannot say, staying on the fence is not making a choice for Lewis. Of course, there are many are on the road, we're all on the road, and he would be the first to say that. And I realized that over the last three weeks, we haven't seen pictures. Some of us may not even know what this guy looks like, right? Uh, and about his life. For more than half of his life, he's an atheist. And had he gone to a Baptist church, he would have been thrown out. Or one of my churches, or maybe even Anglican, I don't know. I doubt it, we would not do that. But, but anyway, I want to talk a little bit about his life before I get into the scrutiny letters. And by the way, all the weekly quotes Come next week, Lord willing, I'm going to have them all written out for us. So you can take them, and they'll only be $10. <laughs> but I will give it to the benevolent folks, just so, just so you know. The world of C.S. Lewis, born in 1898, 1960, died in 1963, had one brother, Warney, a, a couple of years older, born in Belfast, Ireland. And we're gonna, there's Lewis. In case you wanna see a picture of him in his study. Uh, his home was, is about three uh, miles outside of downtown Oxford. It's in Headington Quarry, all right? Headington Grand, there he is in his tweed suit. Uh, 
Oxford, about three miles away, he walked to work most of the time. All right, walked to work. Never learned to drive. Uh, was terrible at sport. Well, he was okay at sports, but you may know he had a deficiency where he couldn't move this muscle in both of the th this bone in both of the thumbs. It's kind of hard to catch a ball or do something if you if you think about that. So there's Lewis in this study. I thought you'd like to see just a couple pictures floating floating by. There he is again, getting a little bit older, drinking his tea, we think. Uh, <laughs> Lewis liked to go to the pubs and liked to share his, his drink with others. His brother, unfortunately, was an alcoholic most of his life, uh, which led to all sorts of adventures for Lewis himself. Um, smoking, yes. At one point in Lewis's life, he was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Okay? When we were living at, uh, uh, staying at Lewis's house for a while, we learned that in the music room, he and his brother would get their pipes out and cigars. They would close all the windows <laughs> and they would blow the smoke out until they couldn't see anybody, each other. And then they would open the windows to see what, the, use your imagination, what kind of shapes Form. Well, no wonder why the guy died quite early. Uh, but yeah, he liked his, his cigars. Oxford University. Uh, Lewis became an Oxford Don in 1925. All right? Oxford University, some of you, I know Kurt and others have, have been there. There's not one place called Oxford University, there's not one building or set of buildings. There are, they are it consists of 39 different colleges. Each college is individually run. They have a university curriculum that they sort of have to abide by. And of course, like everything else, there's a pecking order from the wealthiest to the poorest. Lewis happened to teach at one of the wealthiest colleges, which I'll be showing you in a moment. Beautiful city to visit. Much slower place, uh, pace academically than the American universities. And there again, one, one of the most famous libraries, the Bodleian Library. Uh, again, some pictures. And now we get to Lewis's College. It's pronounced Maudlin College, a very wealthy college. He arrived there in 1925 as an English prof. His first degree was not in English, it was in philosophy. He wanted to be a philosophy professor. And after one year, there were no jobs. So he stayed on, got honors in English, and became an English prof. At the first English faculty meeting of all the English faculty of all 39 colleges, Lewis walks in, and he sees this guy sitting across the table. And he asks him, what's his name? Well, his name was J.R.R. Tolkien. After it was over, Lewis went home and wrote in his diary, met this little twerp of a guy, uh, rather nice, but he needs a smack in the head every now and then. That was his first uh, indoctrination to Lewis. They became the closest of friends. And had we not had the relationship between Lewis and Tolkien, we would not have the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Uh, Tolkien had basically stopped writing him. Lewis had a come to Jesus meeting with him and said, you are going to finish this work. And he did. And of course, and then Lewis was one of the first ones to write in, uh, in, in the London Times a very good review of uh, Tolkien's works. And that's why one of the reasons Lewis was highly disappointed when Tolkien did not like the Narnia Chronicles. 
he actually said to him it was like a vegetarian biting into a juicy hamburger. <laughs> Rather disgusting. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. Modern College, <laughs> Modern College is rather a beautiful college. Uh, these are called the new buildings. New because they were built in 1758. <laughs> All right. Oxford as a school started in 1069. The first time we have anybody recorded learning is in 1069, the oldest university in England. Uh, and when you go to Malin, almost everybody who goes, well, many people, they want to know where are Lewis's rooms. Well, you can't get into the rooms because professors are there. But if you look closely, I believe in the next slide, uh, yeah, I could barely see them. <coughs> you will see geraniums right here. Red geraniums. They plant red geraniums all during the summer so people could say, yes, those were Lewis's rooms. All right? Those are two really strange people. <laughs> there's the wife, there's the daughter. Okay. <laughs> They're not strange. They're actually actually wonderful. Uh, again, another view of Modern College. There's entrance. It looks like you're going to uh, Harry Potter world. It really, really does. Addison's walk is fascinating. There is this walk around uh, Modern College. I'm going to take you back to the evening of September the 19th, 1931. Right? Lewis decided to have invites several of his friends for dinner. So he invites Tolkien, and he invites Hugo Geisen for dinner. Now, dinner at Modern College was extremely formal. It took hours, all right? Multiple courses. After you had your, your meal, you went to the senior commons room where four faculty, and there they had their coffee and their, and their port, and they smoked their cigars or, or their cigarettes. Well, that's what happened. And then later on, Tolkien and Lewis, uh, Lewis and Dyson decided to take a walk around Ad on Addison's Walk. At this point in his life, this is 1931, from 1925 to 1930, Lewis was an atheist. Now, if you read Surprised by Joy, you will, uh, Lewis tells you that in 1929, he becomes a theist. He believes that God is who he says he is. But Lewis was terrible with dates. He got it wrong by one year. All right. Uh, it, it was in 1930. He finally, through a, a long series of events, which I could talk to you later about privately, only $50 extra, uh, uh, Lewis comes to believe that, that God is who he says he is. But he wasn't a Christian in the sense that we would think he's a Christian. So they go on this walk. On the walk, Tolkien says to Lewis, well, here's your problem. You will accept all these other myths all these other stories as containing truth, except for Christianity. And Lewis says, well, yeah, uh, I do believe this. Now, myths for them were a little different than what they are. Their definition of myth is defined as the distilled essence of human experience told in metaphoric narrative. Don't you like that? <laughs> All right. Uh, that's their definition. In other words, Christianity, from that definition, Anybody recording this is a myth. <laughs> Why? Because it's the, the distilled essence of what it means to be human told in story form. So when I tell you the story of the gospel, it's true. From a literary perspective, it is a myth. 
So that's why we in the academy get slammed. I mean, we hear the word, oh, no, it's, it's a really good word, but you have to know how to define it. So Lewis and Tolkien were walking around, and Hugo Dyson saying, Lewis, this is your problem. And Lewis is arguing with, with Hugo Dyson saying, I don't believe in the imagination. It's worthless. It's stupid. This is Lewis. And Tyson there, well, no, this is true. They go back to Lewis's rooms. Tolkien and Tyson continue talking. Three o'clock in the morning, Tolkien decides he has to go home. He leaves. Tyson keeps talking to him. And finally, Lewis gets it into his head through Tolkien and through Tyson that there's the one difference between the Christian myth and all the other myths is that the Christian myth is really true. It really happened. There was this Christ and all, all the rest of it. And that's something, so Lewis ponders that. Tyson leaves and three days later, some of you know the story, Lewis decides to go to the zoo with his brother. And his brother had a motorcycle with a sidecar. So Lewis gets in the sidecar. And here's what Lewis writes. I'm going to talk to Lewis about this when I see him. Because he needed to say more. He said, when I got into the sidecar, I wasn't a Christian. When I got to the zoo, I was. End of his conversion story. That's it. He never writes about it again. I, he, accept, he said, Christianity is true. I want to find out what more, what was going on in this guy's mind, don't you? I mean, I always did, but that's all he ever says about it. So now, 19, uh, it is 1931, this guy's finally become a Christian. And there's a picture, of the literal picture where they were walking. That is Addison's Walk. Beautiful area. Uh, they have white deer, and they've had white albino deer on their property for over 300 years. All right, that you could actually. And they have the salt lake, so you can see all, all, all the deer. Uh, of course, punting, if you go to Oxford. Anybody go to Oxford and punt? Did you punt when you were there? Yeah, yeah I, I, I do not have coordination to do that, but uh, it's kind of fun. This is where the Inklings met. Uh, Eagle and Child, downtown Oxford. In 1933, Tolkien and Lewis started to talk, and they said, let's meet in the evenings and every Monday night in each other's rooms at colleges and talk about literature. So they did. About a year or so later, they invited Warney's brother, I mean Lewis's brother, Warney. He came. And then they decided to invite other people. And this group goes by the name of the Inklings. All right? Uh, there were about 58 members in total, but rarely did seven, more than seven, ever come. They met on Monday nights, but then on Tuesdays, they met at the pub. Now, they weren't reading literature at the pub for the most part. They weren't critiquing each other's texts. And that's where they, some the Narnia Chronicles are read. That's where many of Lewis's works were read, read to each other. And they, they critiqued Monday night, but on Tuesdays, they would get together, and it was for fun. Christian fun, here's my point, and we're drinking. And they were known to be a very boisterous group. A very, very, very boisterous group. Uh, when, that, when the eagle and child got too noisy, they went across the street to the lamb and flag. So if you're, and by the way, this has been closed for two years. They're changing into a bed and breakfast. Oh I know, what can I say? 
Okay. Uh, I don't know why I threw that in. I love coffee. True story. Seventeen hundreds, the very the first coffee shop in, in England. It's, it's just happened to be in my size, and I said, "Well, I'll, I'll just leave it there." You can go to Lewis's house, all right? And they renamed the street to Kim Lane. And you, there's a picture of it. That's part of it. But I want to stop and talk to you about this house. And I have to backtrack. In 1916, you know what happens in England? War. Okay. 1917, Lewis is called up. He goes to Oxford. He goes to Keeble College. And he has a roommate. This roommate's name is FTC Patty Moore. Patty Moore had a mother and a sister. Lewis, by this time, had just his father. His mother had died when Lewis was around eight, and Lewis had a brother. They made a pact with each other, and they said, okay, if one of us is killed in the war, then the other will promise to take care of our parents and, and siblings. They made the pact. Well, Lewis did not die. Patty Moore did the next year. Lewis, however, gets shot in the rear end. By the way, Tolkien did too. I think it's funny. Uh, he ends up in the hospital in, in Great Britain. And who visits him but Patty Moore's mom? Multiple times. So they decide, Lewis decides, I need to take care of her. And I need to take care of Patty's sister. They rented various apartments around Oxford, and they moved nine times. Until finally, all right, in 1930, Lewis, his brother, and Mrs. Moore all got together, pooled their money, and bought what we call what has been named the Kilns. It was named the Kilns because that was, it was literally on a nine-acre plot of land where bricks were made. And the kilns were still there. So they, they just, and the Brits loved to name their houses. So they named it the kilns. Now, Mrs. Moore lived there until she was basically put in, put in a nursing home until uh, 1951. So from 1930 to 1951, he took care of her. Now, the story gets a little more intriguing at this point. All right? For many years, I remember, I remember reading like, okay, Mrs. Moore, I'm looking at Lewis, I'm reading his letters, I'm going, what's going on here? Something's going on here. Uh, Walter Hooper, who was Lewis's private secretary at the time of his death, one month before he died, called a woman by the name of Margaret Mead, who was the assistant director of the Wade Center at Wheaton College, and he said, I'd like you to come to England. I want to give my last interview. He did. He says to Margaret Mead, although I never wanted to say this, I have evidence, and I'm pretty sure, the pre-Christian C.S. Lewis was having an affair with Moore. Well, if you read the letters of Lewis, Lewis's brother and his uh, father won't go back and forth to each other. They talk about, quote, the Moore affair. 
So it's pretty well documented. Although you will have people, the head of the, the person head of the head of the Wade Center is David Downing, and he denies this, and he has his right to do that. But I think there's too many other scholars who say he probably the guy was not a Christian. We're not going to hold him to those standards. But here is where it gets exciting, at least from my point of view. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> just realized what I said. Uh, Private residence, I'm going to flip through these rather quickly, all right? You will see it. There's the house. And now we're to the side of the house. You won't read about this in anybody book, any book, as uh, the Lord was very good to my wife and me. We got to live at Lewis's house for a while, and you learned a lot of things about Lewis by living in his house. This door here front of the house is here. This door here was Lewis's bedroom. To get to his bedroom inside the house, you had to go through Mrs. Moore's bedroom. Okay? You had to go through. And so he had these steps built. When he becomes a Christian, he comes home from college the next week. There is a door between Mrs. Moore's room and his. And all accounts of all of the wardens, the people who took care of the house, they tell us that door was locked the day he came home. He locked the door. The door was not opened again for two years after Mrs. Moore's death. Think of what's going on. Lewis comes in. He decides Christ is who he says he is. He locks the door to the past and he literally says, I'm finished. I'm not going there anymore. So Lewis, come winter, whatever, use the restroom, whatever the case may be, he had to come down these stairs for all of his meals. So if Lewis were here, the question he would probably ask us would be, to what do we need to lock the doors? What is it that we've been dabbling in, he would ask us. What is it that we've been doing that we know we shouldn't, or whatever the case may be? And do we need it metaphorically lock the, literally, Lewis locked the door? And I think it was fascinating. He didn't open it for two years until after her death, which I think is a huge metaphor for all of us. Lock the Blumen door. But no, we wanted, as we learned last week, we want to play with mud pies rather than the glorious things that the Lord has for us. Lewis would say, lock the Blumen door. Uh, there you see a clearer picture of the stairs. And there's a window. Now we're inside the house. Uh, that is the kitchen, all right? I don't know who that strange woman is sitting there. Yes, I do. Uh, but you see this, right, this little thing right here? I think I have another picture of it. Yes, it's an August stove. When we want, it was the summertime we were there. Anyone know a thing about an August stove? Anyone know it? What, oh, you, say you can tell us what's going on the stove. Yeah, of course you can. Oh, my. It's a fire that has an oven and a hot plate on the top for cooking. And it cooks and heats and heats your water. All the time, even in the summer. Yes. So you would come down into this room and go, oh, oh, oh. Um, very expensive at the time. If I believe when we were, didn't they say they had to pay $8,000? Someone donated. Wasn't it 8000 
It's about eight thousand dollars for this August stove, but they wanted to go back original to what the home was like. It's just fascinating. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, dining room, uh, sitting room. That's where they smoked a lot. <laughs> Part of his study. Uh, chairs, obviously, and, and his study. Most of his library now is either at the Bolian Library or at the Wade Center at Wheaton. And what one library doesn't have, the other has Xerox copies. Okay? <laughs> Don't tell the, the American universities. We want them to continue to send American scholars over there to Britain to think they need to do research over there. I never told my university. <laughs> Could have gotten most of them. <laughs> typewriter, Lewis had terrible handwriting, uh, and he would dictate to warning. Warn when the screw tape letters became so famous, Lewis could not keep up with all, all, all the fan uh, mail, so he hired his brother as his personal paid assistant <laughs> for the rest of his life. And it's sometimes very difficult to distinguish between did Warney write the notes or did Lewis write the notes, because Warney was really good at writing the notes, but that is the typewriter that both of them used. It's one of the re few remaining things in the house. Joy's bedroom, and we'll talk about her later on. His, well, he was married for three years. Warney's <laughs> bedroom. Uh, and this was the attic playroom, because you may recall, during the uh, World War II, Lewis took in children, all right? And they had, and he made a, an attic room in, into a playroom for the, for the kids. Okay, we're almost done with the slides. More of the playroom. Yeah, there are wardrobes all over Lewis's room, but they're <laughs> but they're not, they're sort of in American England. They're sort of like pieces of the cross. You know, we have little chips of the cross all over the world for centuries. There are, there are wardrobes all over the place that they claim are Lewis's, even in the Wade Center. I don't believe any of it, but anyway, uh, <laughs> there's his. One wardrobe, and the last picture is nothing. Okay. <laughs> but I wanted to, since we were talking about the imagination and, and not, I wanted you to see some pictures of Lewis. Does anybody have any questions on his life? Anyone? Uh, yes. Did his uh, wife's son ever live? Uh, yes, his wife's. Uh, Joy, when they, they were married for three years, she had two sons, David and Doug. Uh, Doug is the one who does all the financial things and makes all the movies. <clears throat> David is, is unfortunately dead. David was mentally unstable from a little boy. Lewis writes how really difficult it was for him to raise David. Uh, there's one event where uh, Doug is about 11 years old. He was going out the bedroom, off the door at the Kevin's, and his brother poured a bucket of gasoline over him and was ready to write to light a match, and Lewis was there and of course stopped it. So the, the, the younger son, it, it, it's been quite tragic. Uh, he, was, he became a Jew, atheist, and he died uh, in an insane asylum. Yeah, so yes, too. Any other questions about his life, anybody have? Yeah. Did his brother Warney come to know the Lord? Yes, Warney knew the Lord. Warney was an alcoholic, he, he bore that. Uh, he lived 10 years longer uh, th than Lewis, uh, very, very, very faithful to his brother, but he didn't know the Lord, but he struggled with alcoholism to the day he died. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. How about, what's the story on Joy? How did they meet each other? And Joy came to Amer uh, England to escape a terrible marriage. Uh, she married a guy by the name of Gresham. 
uh, because he would do, th he was an alcoholic, and he would do things like taking a beer bottle and crack it over the heads of her two sons. She thought she had to escape, and rightly so. She comes to Oxford, and uh, she always wanted to meet Lewis. So she writes a letter. So Lewis goes with Warney to the nicest little tea shop in downtown Oxford, and they met, and, then, and, and they talked. Well, she was about to be deported. Her time was running out, and they were going to deport her. So whether better or for worse, Lewis decides to marry her secretly. So he does. He keeps her in the States. Well, then he keeps seeing her, and lo and behold, they fall in love. Okay? Uh, and then, but she was divorced. So many preachers, many of his friends in the Anglican Church wanted nothing to do with that wedding at that time. But he finally found a priest friend who would marry them, and, and she did. She got cancer multiple times, long story. Uh, they were happily married, and they went to the Greek islands for a couple months. And she, the marriage lasted three years because she basically died of cancer. But there's a famous story of Lewis's prayer life. Her bones were deteriorating. It was cancer of the bone. And he started to pray, Lord, please, please relieve her from some pain. Take, my, take whatever you need from my body. She started to get stronger. He literally started to get weaker, and calcium was coming out of his bones. True story. She dies in 1960. They were married for three years. But they were deeply in love. She was a piece of work, though. Uh, she kept most, she chased most friends away from Lewis. Um, Lewis's friends were used to coming into his house anytime out of the doors were never locked. She's sitting there one time after the wedding and talking to friends entering. Well, they were out for a walk and um, Joy comes in with, with Lewis and she looks at him and says, well, what the hell are you two all doing? And she says, well, that, you know. The waters parted, and many of his friendships were, were broken out because of the wedding. But he loved her to the end. He really did love her. She would do things like sit on, they owned nine acres around the council, sit on the edge of property, and if you came by and trespassed, she would shoot you with drop with salt. <laughs> I mean, she would literally take a gun and shoot you. You could not transfer it you know, on, on her property. Any other questions? Yes. Can you go more into Tolkien's relationship with C.S. Lewis, especially after his review of Narnia and how that transpired? Uh, yeah. Tolkien and Lewis were fast friends for many years. They said they started the Inklings of the Incalvent in 1933. Uh, in 1941, a member joined them, but and his name was Charles Williams. Anybody ever heard of Charles Williams? Charles Williams, if you want to read an intellectual Christian author, more so than Lewis, you read Charles Williams. And I would start with the novel, The Place of the Lion. All right? Phenomenal. It will shake you up, change your world, uh, and you'll, be, you'll have all kinds of questions. Charles Williams was the glue that held everybody together, okay, including Lewis and Tolkien. And they met, and uh, they critiqued each other's works. The screw tape letters, if you had your copy and you looked at, at, at the front piece, were dedicated to Tolkien. Okay? Tolkien was disturbed by that. <laughs> and the reason why he was disturbed by that, he didn't think Lewis was a Christian long enough to write such a piece of literature. Alright? He said, no, I don't, you know, and, and plus he didn't like it. Uh, and, and, and the screw tape letters were Lewis's least favorite of all the works he wrote. He said, 
it was the easiest to write, but it also was the least because he literally went into depression after he wrote it. Mm -hmm. Think about it. He said, everything's from the enemy's perspective. He had, and he had to start thinking like an evil one. Everything was backwards. He wrote one of those letters in, in one setting. There, and there are 31 of them. He made about $3.50 on each letter. That was, but he didn't keep the money. He gave it to uh, uh, the Episcopal Fund for Widows for an Episcopal priest. Uh, but Louis, uh, Tolkien was not happy with that. Anyway, uh, they would encourage each other in their writings. Mere Christianity, I mean, those were read by each one of them. Uh, the Fellowship, uh, as I said, we would not have that. All right, we would not have that document, that long letter, unless Lewis had this come to Jesus meeting with him. Very close relationship. Joy was part of the falling out. Okay, Joy was part of the falling out. But Lewis kept close friends with Tolkien's son, Christopher. Even though when the adults were separated, he kept close. Uh, but uh, they were acquaintances by the end, end of the relationship, mainly because of Joy in the last couple of years. Uh, Tolkien himself, well, I was telling somebody tonight, uh, Tolkien lived 10 years after his wife died, and he became the founder of Meals on Wheels in Oxford for the last 10 years of his life. <laughs> Good thing to do with his money. Okay? Any other questions? Okay. How are we doing for time? Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. Let's. And I, I thought it would be fun to see pictures, to hear about Lewis and Clyde. If you have any other questions later, I know. Whenever, I'll gladly try to have some of my sermon. You don't know everything about his life. There are many controversies swirling around about his life, uh, which we can try. Okay. All righty. Unlike many authors, we know the exact moment when the screw tape letters came into the mind of C.S. Lewis. We know the exact moment. May of 1940, Warney was coming back from Europe, and from Dundurk, actually, and he, went, he was at a camp in Cardiff, Wales. And uh, his brother wrote to him, and he received the letter on the evening of July the 20th. And apparently the night before, Jack, or C.S. Lewis, was with uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Harvard. They were listening to Hitler give a radio address. Okay, this, this is fascinating. They were listening. And here are Lewis's words, because he wrote them to warning. I don't know if I'm weaker than other people, but it is a positive revelation to me how while the speech lasts, it is impossible not to waver just a little. I should be useless as a schoolmaster or a policeman. Statements which I know to be utterly untrue but convince me, at any rate for the moment, if only the man says them unflinchingly. Now this is Lewis' great mind, perfect memory. He's listening to Hitler, and he goes, thou almost hast persuaded me, which is quite powerful. Well, the next day was Sunday, all right? Uh, Lewis goes to church 
Lewis usually went to the 8 a.m. service because he hated the musical dribbles called the hymns that they sang. He did not like the hymns. He said they were just stupid, his, mind, his words. So he, but he happened to go to a later service, something tied him up, and he went to Holy Trinity Church in Hennington, which is a beautiful small mall, mall church, uh, and he went for the communion service. After the service, he goes home and writes this to his brother. Before the service was over, one could wish these things came more seasonably. I was struck by an idea for a book which I think might be useful and entertaining. It will be called, remember, stupid titles, One Devil to Another, he bad title person, and would consist of letters from an elderly retired devil to a young devil who has just started work on his first patient. The idea will be to give all the psychology of temptation from the other point of view. That's how we got the idea, thanks to Hitler. Rather fascinating. <laughs> Who would have thought? Lewis wrote one letter per setting. He would sit down and write the letters. And again, he published it in The Guardian, which is now the now defunct uh, Anglican uh, Gazette, I guess we could call it. The first letter came out in May uh, 2nd, 1941. And he wrote about a letter a week until November the 28th. He was paid about two pounds, so figure out whatever that is nowadays, maybe $3.50 per, per, per letter. But he says he did not enjoy writing. Here are his words. Though I had never written anything more easily, I never wrote with less enjoyment. Though it was easy to twist one's mind into the diabolical attitude, it was not fun, or not for long. The strain produced a sort of spiritual cramp the world into which I had to project myself while I spoke through screw tape was all dust, grit, thirst, and itch. Every trace of beauty, freshness, and geniality had to be excluded from my thinking. Mm -hmm. That would certainly put you over the edge for, from, from May to November doing what, what he did. Well, once the letters appeared in The Guardian, his popularity throughout the world literally exploded. It was this book, all right? And Lewis, I said before, couldn't keep t uh, pace with all of the letters, so thus he, he employed his, his brother. The book was finally published in February of the following, following year in book form uh, in 1942. By the end, this was in February, by December, the book had gone into eight printings, which just imagine how many books it actually saw. An instant, instant bestseller. Uh, Lewis did consider writing a companion piece from an archangel, uh, an art, uh, looking at the patient from the archangel's perspective, but here's why he, here's why he said he didn't. He said, mere advice would be no good. Every sentence would have to smell of heaven. I can't do that. <laughs> so he did not write the book. So in the work, we have a senior tempter by the name of Screwtape. Oh, isn't that an interesting name? Anybody want to guess how it comes into existence? Not if I told you, don't tell me, but I'd like to tell. Anybody Screwtape? They're all kind of theories. Scholars love theories, right? They get paid to go to conferences to come up with their theories. One that I think is kind of fun is that the word tape, according to this one author, is the British slang word for whiskey. So if you screw tape and then screw the tape off, 
And the, the logic goes with this one, that Lewis likes his alcohol, his brother is an alcoholic, that perhaps it was the greatest temptation for them. Matter of fact, some biographers say that all, the biographies of Lewis are all over the map, but one actually says that Lewis enjoyed every semester getting all the students drunk. <laughs> That's one. I don't believe that because it's not confirmed in any other biography, including biographies written by Lewis's students. Oh, yeah, so I think that's sort of crazy. But that's one theory. I think the best theory uh, is called, uh, in English, when we go from a verb and then make it a noun, we call it backformation. There actually was a verb in English called to screw tape. And it means to muddle up, to fuss around with evil, which now makes perfect sense when, when you hear, to me, for that one, that logical one, to be the reason why, why we have screw tape. Uh, so you have the screw tape, and, his, and he's, he's the senior tempter. He's the undersecretary of his department in hell. And the work is funny. I hope if you read it, you did laugh at some of them. It's mild. And the work is meant to be dramatic irony. Nice literary term that all dramatic irony means is that the people in the story have no idea that somebody else is listening. Scripte has no idea that you're listening, that humans are hearing his argument. So things that weren't funny to him would be really funny to us. And dramatic irony is at the heart of this, and it's comical. Wasn't it Luther who says, you want to make the devil angry, laugh at him? All right, and other great scholars like, uh, like uh, as Luther. Okay, so we look at this, and we have the patient, the poor patient, and we see the bureaucracy of hell. We see hell's, hell's manipulation of human weaknesses, and uh, as I said, screw tape, assumes he's writing for an audience of one. And of course, he's not writing for an audience of one. He's writing for many. Uh, and Screwtape gives Wormwood detailed advice on how to undermine God. And some of it's quite brilliant. And to be honest, we have all fallen for many of Screwtape letters. Screwtape's advice to Wormwood, I would dare say most of us in here have listened to. We listen to the wormwoods in our in our life. I guess we. I, I should say, screw tapes. Only good is selfish gain and power. That is screw tapes. Only good in the book, selfishness and power. All right. He doesn't acknowledge any virtue. He calls Satan our father below. He calls God the enemy. And by the second letter, our patient has converted to Christianity. Him, of course, Wormwood is duly chastised. And Wormwood has all of this excitement. He, 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 he says, you know, I, I want to tempt him with big sins. I, you know, I want to, uh, uh, deplorable sins. And he's talking, and then Screwtape says to Wormwood, I don't think so. Matter of fact, Screwtape says, for these Christians floating around Athens. Hmm. For those Anglicans. Matter of fact, I'm not going to tempt them with the big sin. Oh, no, I'm going to tempt them. The subtle approach is going to work a lot better. All right? Brian's not going to go out and rob a bank. All right? Bill White's not going to shoot his wife tonight, are you? Not good. <laughs> There'll be no murders. No. She'd have the faster of the draw. 
<laughs> I'm going to continue. Uh, <laughs> Lewis, uh, I mean, Scripture says the subtle approach. As a matter of fact, here's what he says. He's talking to Wormwood, and Wormwood wants you know, to tempt Ryan to shoot somebody. He said, here's screw tape. You will say that uh, these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than a stack of cards or a television. I added that. <laughs> if cards can do the trick. And here's the line. Indeed, the safest, this is what Screwtape talking, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's the little sins, the small ones. Don't we're not going to commit murder. We're not going to rob banks. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to do what Screwtape talks about later. He says one of the greatest things you could do to the Christian is surround them with noise mm -hmm. of any kind. Noise. Because if we're constantly listening to things, constantly chattering, when does God in his quiet voice speak to us? That's why the daily office, if Lewis were here, which he did, would, is so important. It quiets us down. It says to us, stop talking. I remember Dec Father Daniel gave a sermon many years ago that I've told umpteen dozen people about on the road to Emmaus. When did the apostles, those two turkeys, recognize that Jesus was who he was? at the breaking of the bread. And then Father Daniel said to us, during the Eucharist, God wants to commune with you. Now these are my words. Shut up. <laughs> All of us. Just shut up and ask God what he wants to say during the, for Lewis, the Eucharist was the biggie. It was the holiest thing ever. All right? And Lewis says, just be quiet. We talk too much in church. Let God talk to us during the communion. And noise, Lewis says, is our biggest enemy. Noise. So the slowest, the, uh, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Screwtape then explains, how am I doing for time? Okay, oh good. Screwtape then explains to Wormwood the different purposes that the enemy and our father below have for us. Who is reading number one? We have a reading. To decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what use the enemy wants to make of it, and then do the opposite. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. 
To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with lots of loathsome little replicas of himself. <laughs> Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to get out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. So many chapters are just filled. And Lewis has just a handful of themes. And what you just heard from Ian in reading this is, God wants to fill the universe with little replicas of himself. You and me. The enemy does not want that. God doesn't want to absorb us. He wants willing servants who obey him. Satan, the text says, wants cattle, wants us for food. God wants his servants to become his sons and daughters. And that's who we are. God wants to fill. Satan wants to empty. Satan wants to draw us unto himself for destruction. And God wants a world full of beings united with him, but distinct. Remember that name, new name we're going to have on that rock in Revelation 2? God doesn't want Ian's and Hannah's only. He wants Charlie's and Dorothy's and Catherine's and Peter's. He wants you, is what Lewis is telling us. Can we have time for one more reading? Okay. <clears throat> I am screw tape. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> and that is where the troughs come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sens sensibly present to human souls in any degree. He chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods 
much more than during the peak periods that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table and the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. But of course, the troughs afford opportunities to our side also. Next week, I shall give you some hints on how to exploit them. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Master Verley Lewis reminds us that most of the time, it's in the troughs in our life. Not in the mountaintop experiences where we grow more like Christ. And nobody likes that. <laughs> I certainly don't like it. All right? Uh, he, he says, God does not and will not override our wills. And I love the line, God will not ravish, he woos. God says, I love you so much. I'm not going to take your personality away. You have to be willing to do what I, I want to. What you, want, you need to be willing to do my will. The creatures are to be one with God and yet themselves. And he says, when we first came to Christ, and you could certainly remember this, and I, I certainly do, it's all emotional sweetness. Just I mean, how many testimonies have we heard? Uh, it, Easy to conquer sin, easy with temptation. And then Lewis writes through screw tape, sooner or later, God withdraws, not in fact, but he withdraws the emotions, he says, and the supports. And screw tape says, and then the creatures have to stand on their own two legs. They have to make choices. All right? And they have to carry on with will alone. And their duties. Reading the stupid daily prayer is no longer really pleasant. Or whatever your devotions are. And it's no longer joyful. And it's so... And Lewis writes later on, we, so we stop one day, we stop two, and then you know how easy it is to stop all together praying and reading and singing. The enemy hates singing. Screwtape says, no, no, no music. No, no music whatsoever. All right. And in the trough periods, Lewis writes, more than in the peaks, they grow into the sort of creature he wants them to, to be. He said, we drag our patient along. God doesn't tempt. He wants them to learn to walk on their own. And I will conclude with these, with these words. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. 
So Father, thank you for Lewis. Thank you for yourself. Thank you that you woo us. Thank you that you don't want to, to take our personalities away. Thank you you want to fill us with joy. But thank you you want us to become your sons and daughters. Thank you for the troughs. Thank you for the low periods. Thank you for the high periods. But Father, we ask for the gumption, the strength, and the will to obey, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the trough. And thank you that someday we will see you face to face and the enemy will be defeated forever. And it's in the name of your risen Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you. We will finish up the screw tape letters next time in about 20 minutes, and then we'll go on to Narnia. Okay? And we'll meet the next 20 weeks. No. <laughs>